Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And in this episode, my co-host, Jennifer Hines, and I have a really amazing conversation with Nick Humphrey, meteorologist and geoscientist Nick Humphrey. Nick's a young man with a young family, and he speaks with prophetic power, and there's nobody that speaks on the topic of abrupt climate change more compellingly and uh, grounded in our best evidential understanding of reality. Enjoy. Uh, this is the first call that Jennifer and I will co-host. Yeah. Uh, she'll be doing four or five others. And uh, so we wanted to just sort of get the feel, but we were singing your praises prior to coming on. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I was telling him how you've kind of broken into the mainstream and you were on the BBC for, you were even, were you on their um, television? Or yeah, just, yeah, I was on BBC, it was last uh, July, I was on BBC World News for like Yeah, <laughs> right, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. So you've kind of like made the jump. It's kind of like those those country singers who kind of want to cross over into pop. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you noticed that too. <laughs> it's been kind of kind of challenging to to get attention. Like even during the floods we had here, we didn't, nobody... I was like, I went to a contact I had at Mother Jones. I was like, are you guys <laughs> tracking this? It's kind of like a huge disaster. And it was like, oh, we hadn't done anything on it yet. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. really? <laughs> I know this is kind of considered flyover country, but, you know, you need your food from here. So, you know, it seems like kind of a big deal, but that's just me. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you have been, I only learned about you actually, um, I don't know, within the last year, year and a half, I think it was X-Ray Mike um, that first alerted me to you and then started, I, then I just started reading a bunch of your posts and see basically, you know, uh, uh, finding you on Patreon and, and uh, supporting you to a little degree that we do. Um, but you have become for me and Connie, my wife as well, just one of the go-to people in terms of the yeah. big picture. This is what Jennifer and I were discussing just even before you came on. You're, you're like one of my main go-to people in terms of who get the big picture, who understand things like overshoot and that, that ultimately climate is a predicament, not a problem. Yeah. And, and that, uh, that uh, our issues are, are far more grounded in a dysfunctional worldview. But you also get and speak about... Um, abrupt climate change and the fact that this is not something that might happen sometime in the distant future, but we're already experiencing abrupt climate change. Yeah. Um, and yet you bring a real a sober, um, but mostly l joyful spirit to it. And you've got a young family. And so it's just, yeah. it's a delight to have you in this series because I'm imagining post doom being about people who get it, move have moved through whatever they've needed to move through and then come through the other side to make whatever dis difference they can with whatever gifts they have and not let their limitations um, you know short you know sh uh, uh, short circuit uh their effectiveness in the world so yeah 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 i agree with you yeah uh, thanks for having me on yeah. oh well you're welcome brother so um if you would i'm asking folks before we get into the kind of questions that i uh mentioned in the email um, for people who aren't yet familiar with you uh, and what your work is and what your passion is uh, help us get you like share what your you know I'll, I'll ask 
in a little bit your story of how you came to this, but uh, help us understand um, sort of who you are and what you bring to the world and what you're particularly yeah. concerned about. Yeah, I'm a, so I am a, a meteorologist. I have a, a master's degree at Mississippi State University. I, I live here in Lincoln. I'm originally from Seattle, Washington, grew up there, uh, went to college at first in that area of the world. Um, I, I've always had a passion for, for weather and climate. Um, you know, for me, it's sort of the way of knowing, um, knowing the, the sort of the complexities of the world and, and trying to organize it, especially forecasting. You know, that was always my big focus for a long time was to be a forecaster, you know, and, and, you know, I think, I think it, it, it just, uh, it calms me to be able to, to sort of dig into data and dig into into knowledge and always learn more, and so that's that's sort of a big thing for me, um, you know. So that's why I became a scientist, a meteorologist, and and um, I I love what I do, and yeah, I, I've had difficulty finding work in my field, so that's why I, I turned to to sort of abrupt climate change. Once I understood what abrupt climate change was, you know, I you know turned to communicate, being a scientific communicator in that topic in extreme weather events to get people to understand the connections between the two as they see the, the world's climate to stabilize around them. Yeah, yeah. Jennifer, uh, you shared before we started the recording a little bit of your own experience of Nick. Uh, anything you want to share along these lines uh, in, a, in, the, in the official context? Because uh, you, your own, well, first of all, anybody who's watching this or listening to this, if you've not yet watched my interview or listened to my conversation with Jennifer, it was the second one we uploaded to YouTube in this series. Uh, so I encourage you to do that. But uh, Jennifer, share a little bit of your own experience of, of Nick. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, be happy to. And Nick, great to see you again today. Um, yeah, I've you. known Nick for quite some time. Um, he was coming to prominence a couple of years ago and um, actually, I was active in the near-term human extinction support group, and Nick was posting really outstanding things. I think that might have been about three years ago when you started doing that. Is that about right? <clears throat> uh, two years ago. Two yeah, years ago, was it? Yeah. Well, it was a swift rise. And um, I was on Extinction Radio at that time. That's now actually folded up. And uh, we had Nick on early on when he was kind of first up and coming. And I don't know how many times Nick's been on Extinction Radio or was on Extinction Radio when it was around. But he was definitely, you know, in lockstep. And he um, is very active in, in Patreon. And I've always had such an extraordinary experience with Nick. Um, currently, both Nick and I are active in Environmental Coffee House. And we go live um, every sporadic Friday night um, and kind of talk about the events that are happening on the world. And that's a, a group that's also through Facebook. So Nick and I have kind of been um, people in arms together for a couple of years now, I guess. Well, Nick, about this term post-doom, uh, what do you think <coughs> of when you hear of post-doom? And then, and then sort of related to that, what language do you use uh, for uh, 
speaking about these deteriorating times, these contracting times, I mean, some of the language that others have used, catabolic collapse is the way that John Michael Greer speaks about it. Uh, the extinction of Homo Colossus is the way we Patton has talked about it, sixth mass extinction and so on. So what, what, what if anything comes to mind for you when you hear post-doom and then what language do you use for these times? I thought about it for a while. I think with post-doom, it's, it's, um, you know, it, it, it invokes a, a um, sort of civilization becoming an afterthought, you know, where it used to be the most prominent force in the world, um, except for perhaps nature, <laughs> whereas we're learning. Um, but it's been, you know, a competition between um, nature trying to control humans as a species that is a part of nature and, and to me, civilization trying to um, trying to control both nature and control its ability to 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 keep down humans and their ability to grow. So uh, you know, you know, the doom is really that that you know collapse and potential, you know, and in my view, perhaps likely extinction of humans and other species. And then that post doom is sort of the that period of decline when you no longer have, you know, civil society and you no longer have all of the, the growth, you have decline of population, decline of, of, of uh, contact with other people, uh, just everything goes the other direction where it has before gone in one direction, uh, faster and faster. And, um, you know, and then you could, you could talk about not only like this, this, the social civilized structure, but also sort of the individual, um, you know, like during the dark, dark ages, you had changes in, 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 in culture and art and everything else going from Roman times uh, for Europe. And then you had disease like the Black Plague in the Middle Ages. So something like that, except on a global scale where we, we go through all of these stages of grief for the past, but then we sort of continue to move forward, but we are uncertain as to where that path will be. Yeah. That's sort of the things that come to mind when I think of that term. It's kind of an esoteric term, but in a good way, because it forces you to really have to think about something that's never really been thought before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for myself, it, it, it really <clears throat> is about looking beyond the catastrophe, beyond mm -hmm. the collapse. Uh, I mean, one of the things that has helped me is recognizing that we have over a hundred examples, like somewhere around 115, 120 examples of previous civilizations, plural, that have become great and collapsed over the last six or 7,000 years. Mm -hmm. and, and yet even that is dwarfed by the fact that 97% of human history, we lived more or less sustainably. We lived in groups and sizes and had worldviews that allowed us to live and treat primary reality as primary. Yeah. So my 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 hope is, well, first of all, my faith. Where what post doom means for me is trust that whether we go extinct in ten years, like if abrupt climate change really wigs out fast, or whether we go extinct in two or three million years, it's most likely going to be in that time frame. And yet yeah. life goes on. Two million years on Earth's time frame on the universe's time frame is not that long. So it's, it's putting my heart, allowing my emotions and my feeling to not just be in freak out mode or grief mode or anger mode or whatever, but to basically trust in a future that will certainly not include humans at some point, And that could be pretty soon, but my faith is in life. My faith is in evolution. My faith is in ecology. My faith is in yeah. the process, I guess. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's sort of been my evolution too, because, you know, I, I don't know how, and I was telling a couple other people this earlier today, I, I don't know how, well, I mean, when we say how long we have, what is we, is that the entire species? Is that civilization and humans still are around? I, you know, I have no answers to those questions. And, you know, I, I've had to sort of to step back and be like, okay, you know, I can look at trends. I can look at all this data. I know that certain things are going to converge at certain time ranges that could really make things more um more difficult and accelerate sort of a collapse situation. And I know what could happen when that happens, but I don't really have all the answers. And I think, <clears throat> I think for humans in general, we have difficulty um, accepting that what we don't know or understand. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a classic thing, I guess, with humans. And so it, I think for me, it's a matter of, you know, just, you know, accept what's except what's going to happen ultimately but also accept that i don't know everything yeah that you know i just i have to take things you know day by day week by week year by year and and even if i know that the future may not always involve growth and bigger better things like it was expected of previous generations i know that as long as i'm still around as long as my fiance my son other family, we're still around, I can continue forward. And then it's just figuring out, you know, what, what, what skills do I need and what, what mental state of mind do I need to be able to continue to move forward and not be locked away in, in perpetual depression. Well, Nick, um, what brought you to this point in your life where you've become um, might I say, a world-renowned abrupt climate change meteorologist generalist um, and with, with incredible perceptions and definitely up and coming and in the public eye, having been on BBC and quoted in the Washington Post, among others. How did you get here and what were your passions that really drove you to come to this point in your life? For me, it, 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 it's been sort of a process the past several years. Like I've always just in general, I've had interest in mostly in, mostly in, in weather and short-term events and stuff like that. But obviously I would have an interest in looking at what was going on with climate change and, and, and in general. And, <clears throat> but I had no idea about abrupt climate change until until nature literally started showing me signs of it. I remember, I remember in, um, in 2015, I, it was February, I traveled to Seattle with my fiance to see uh, my family. And uh, it was uh, unusually hot. And I use that term hot, in this case, hot winter <laughs> in Seattle and Northwest was drought. I remember getting off the plane looking out toward the Olympic mountain range, which is west of Seattle, west of Puget Sound, and there was barren land. There was no snow. <laughs> you know, and that, for me, that was kind of like, huh, that, that's, uh, that's kind of strange. I've never seen anything like that before. So that, was, that kind of uh, shook me a little bit. And then there were other little things. So, you know, um, Hurricane Patricia that year became a, 
worst hurricane to have winds over 200 miles an hour um, in the Eastern Pacific. That was kind of uh, terrifying. Yeah, and then I, and then, you know, other, other little like weather events, because obviously I track what, I was a big meteorologist, so I track weather, 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 weather. But I see these events and I'm like, huh, that seems a little out of kilter. <laughs> and then I, and then for me, it was um, uh, Hurricane Harvey, you know, watching, uh, watching it rain f for hours, going to sleep, waking up and it's still raining, seeing um, people flooded, getting on their roofs, flooding from their homes. You know, we obviously we'd seen Katrina, you know, 12 years earlier, but it was something different about that event. And, and you know, so for me, these events kind of got my brain refocused away from you know, this is, a, this is something of the future to thinking this is something that's happening right now. And I, kn I knew that I was kind of off kilter from the rest, from a lot of other meteorologists, because I remember during Harvey, there were some uh, meteor, a few meteorologists and, and also politicians stuff that started explicitly saying, you know, this climate change has something to do with, with uh, <clears throat> Harvey. And a and, lot of, and I and, heard a lot of meteorologists actually come out and, and, and argue against talking about climate change in reference to a single event, which is technically accurate. You can't instantly attribute something, but when it's so off the scale like that, and you have reasons to believe from a scientific standpoint, using the term belief in that way, um, you know, basically extremely heavy rainfall, slow moving storm, high intensity, you know, these kind of things, um, it should at least become part of the conversation because you know those kind of events are going to become more frequent, but it was a lot of people wanted to shut that down. And for me, that was sort of the start of di diverging away from the other members of the community that really didn't want to always talk about climate change beyond sea level rise. Um, and, you know, I, so I think, and another part of what brought me to where I am now is the fact that I wasn't, frankly, I had difficulty getting a job in the field. You know, I had difficulty getting hired to like the weather service. I'd had interviews with the weather service. I had interviews for other jobs that, and that never went anywhere. So I was sort of an independent guy. I had the ability to have an independent voice on social media. And I, I had a blog before my Patreon blog that was devoted to the covering ocean storms, hurricanes, and large frontal storms that could produce damage. So I, so I started having, trying to have more of a presence on my own to, to foster my own growth and development and my own ability to communicate with people. Um, and, and so that's really what sort of brought me more, um, brought me more in front of other people outside of just getting the degree and getting a job. Because um, if I, frankly, if I got into the degree and then got a job, I probably wouldn't even be here right now. Um, I'd be, you know, working and, and being a part of the, the, uh, the hamster wheel, so to speak, <laughs> of civilization and doing my thing and, and being the professional um, as you're supposed to be in the field. Um, but instead, I wasn't able to get my myself through the door so I just made my own door somewhere else and made my own voice 
I'm really so. glad that you mentioned that because yeah, it's absolutely the case. Would you have, you know, if you'd have gotten a normal job, you'd be attending to your career and you wouldn't be able to say the kinds of things that you do say now because your job would be threatened. It's like yeah. you've had a freedom because of the uh, hardship of not being able to just get out and get sort of the, the ideal job you would have liked. So I'm grateful yeah. to the universe that it unfolded that way, even though it was probably <laughs> painful at times. <laughs> a little painful, but it, it, it's worked out for me, I think, pretty well. And I've been enjoying it a lot better. Just because we all kind of see the same vision in the world we, as we know it, you know, just like the song, it's the end of the world as we know it. It doesn't mean that we just like want to lie down and die, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really important to, I mean, it doesn't mean just because this horrible thing is upon us. And we kind of have a little bit of latitude right now to talk about it because it's not upon us so much that we're kind of fearing for our lives still yeah. it's it's at a distance so we can kind of talk about it but not panic because our well-being's not not threatened but i mean it is a kind of amazing thing and it's also verboten for meteorologists to consider abrupt climate change and actually people in your industry meteorology who who get into abrupt climate change and start putting the dots together are kind of like shunned, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a couple of different reasons. Number one, for TV meteorologists, it's uh, uh, news editors and audience. Um, you know, you, you, it's a business still. You know, it's not just uh, informational, it's a business, so you have to communicate certain things to your audience. And there are some meteorologists that have a little wider latitude um, uh, that discuss climate change um, as frequently as they possibly can, including um, some in like the so-called red states, the Republican heavy states, where it's not always um, friendly to discuss the topic, but they still at least have, have a friendly station where they have the ability to speak out and discuss at least the IPCC's version of climate change, which since that's the official line, it's a, they at least get to say, hey, this is the official line of all these scientists in this organization. We should be able to discuss it, you know, openly. You know, so, um, but I think part of meteorology is it's focused on, on weather and impacts and trying to protect people from those impacts, which is good. And that's what I, you know, some of these extreme weather events, I'll spend a lot of time discussing the impacts and talking about, you know, I get very meteorology person, <laughs> meteorological with that kind of stuff, like with Hurricane Dorian, for example, going on right now. But I, I really think that because there is, there is something more to the story with climate change, especially abrupt climate change, understanding what's going on with Ar the Arctic, with permafrost, with extreme heat events, um, that you have to bring these extreme events into greater context. And that's what I've decided to make my sort of niche be, which is discussing extreme events, bring out wider context, and bring people to hopefully a conclusion 
that you're seeing more and more and more of these events because of climate change or statistics of weather have changed. And so you see most of these events, you should see that there'll be either more or less of them in the future. And that's bad for us <laughs> and bad for other species on this planet that, de that depend on a stable climate. Uh, climate change as it occurs in nature is typically something that occurs on the order of hundreds to thousands of years. So it's centennial, multi-centennial to multi-millennial. And many times it's changed change by slight um, uh, changes in the sol solar radiation and, and changes in the albedo, which is the reflection of light from the, off the earth. Uh, and you get these temperature changes that occur um, on the order of hundreds to thousands of years. And you get pro profound changes in the climate. So you can go from what we call a hothouse earth, which is what the dinosaurs lived through, to something like ice ages, which the mammoths dealt with and which humans also dealt with um, as well. Abrupt climate change is a little bit, is well, oh, dramatically different. Abrupt climate change, as uh, Dr. James White, a scientist that studies Arctic climate change, has defined and others have defined, is climate change on, on the order of a human lifetime. So you get profound changes in the climate system within a matter of 50 to 80 years. Sometimes you have dramatic changes regionally that can occur within five to 10 years where the climate of an area is just dramatically different. You know, you can go drill into ice cores and from that you can look at carbon dioxide levels and estimate temperature from that. And you'll see almost discontinuous changes where it's a where it's line, line, and then shoots up. The temperature suddenly jumped. Well, suddenly was like four or five years, <laughs> and it stays stable at that new state, you know, within a matter of a short period of time. So it's very rapid climate change. It can be the loss and death of forests, the loss of glaciers, the loss of sea ice, um, rapid global warming, not just regional warming, but global warming. And there's some speculation that abrupt climate change like this not only occurred during the ice ages coming in and out of those ice ages, where you have these periods of abrupt change, but also during the Permian mass extinction event 250 million years ago, we had tons of carbon dioxide being brought into the atmosphere from volcanic eruptions in Siberia. Um, so, um, and, and right now, humans are basically doing their own volcanic eruption um, with uh, huge amounts of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere and also uh, beginning to release methane, which is a powerful greenhouse gas, and of course, car more carbon dioxide from the permafrost and, and all dramatically altering the climate. The climate of the planet is already um, fairly altered from even time my parents were born in the 1950s. So it's... Uh, um, if you look at the world and go to the world as it was in the 50s, rainfall, patterns, heat, extreme heat, um, heat wave events, all of these things are so much, are already so much different than it was when my parents were born. And uh, they will continue to get even worse faster. And that can be a thing with abrupt climate change. Not only do you have rapid change in a certain time frame, but you have an acceleration of change 
So changes that took 20 years, the next set of changes take 10, the next set of changes take five. So it, it can be very, very devastating for, for, um, uh, for ecosystems and of course human habitation. You mentioned the Permian mass extinction just now and you know as an example of how we've had major extinctions in the past, the Permian mass extinction 250 million years ago being the biggest mass extinction we ever have had on planet Earth where 95% of known species perished. We're obviously going into the sixth great extinction as we speak. I think it's much faster than the Permian mass extinction. I don't know how many times faster, however. Do you have an idea as to how much faster the sixth great extinction is when compared to the Permian mass extinction? I mean, the Permian mass extinction was something that occurred, again, over hundreds to thousands of years, um, which were, for nature, was probably like a, a a slaughter. I mean, it was a lot of life being killed on the planet over time. That's, that's, I mean, if you think about the history of human civilization, that's what, seven, eight thousand years, nine thousand years. I mean, <laughs> that's how long it took for the Permian mass extinction to take place. Um, here we're seeing, um, you know, estimates of 150, 200 species dying a day um, since since the 1950s and 60s accelerating to present time as you've had the acceleration in deforestation and other things that don't even have anything to do with climate change. It's just humans consuming faster and faster and faster um, in addition to um, pollution and then in addition to actual effects of climate change. So, I mean, for, I mean, this is something that's happening on the order of uh, years to decades instead of hundreds to thousands of years. Uh, so it's, a, it's extremely, extremely fast. We hear about various projections, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, IPCC, best case, worst case, medium case. A lot of those projections um, assume a certain level of agency, uh, assume a certain level of uh, human uh, still humans still in the driver's seat that may not be warranted or I don't think are warranted. And so I'm curious, uh, I've got sort of a twofold question. One is, what do you honestly, personally, as a meteorologist uh, and as somebody who looks at the data and the trends, what do you think is the most likely scenario? And then how do you process that with your own family and, and closest friends? Most likely scenario right now is business as usual getting worse faster because of the various uh, feedback loops that are seem to be establishing themselves over the past, um, depending on what which one it is, past 30 years to 10 to 15 years. Because um, uh, the, the, the climate projections, most of them don't take into account a lot of a lot of things, the, the loss of sea ice is faster, the loss of permafrost, not only the subsea permafrost, such as an East Siberian sea that people are concerned about for more abrupt methane releases. We're talking about land permafrost that's supposed to refreeze or stay cold all year round, or at least refreeze in the winter. It doesn't anymore. So it just turns to mush, collapses, falls into the sea. Um, 
you know, the, there's the loss of carbon from dying forests that are killed either by wildfire, drought, or bugs infestations. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just countless, countless feedback loops and amplification cycles. And, um, you know, so for me, it, it's been business as usual uh, for a while in terms of that um, climate scenario that would take us to four to six degrees by 2100. You know, if nothing else happened, but now you're having all these other things accelerated faster. So could it be four to six degrees by 2050? Could it be four to six degrees by 2030, 2040? Nobody knows, um, except business as usual is probably, and I usually tell people this is probably the conservative scenario. It assumes that nothing else, none of these feedbacks that we're starting to see don't get any worse than they already are. Um, it's probably the extremely conservative scenario. Yeah. Um, uh, realistically, it's probably much, much worse than that, even though we don't know what it is. Most people that are not tracking this stuff regularly just don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty like, um, hush, hush. <laughs> it's lonely too, I suspect. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, something you can't really talk about with very few people because it, it, the conclusion is, is um, if not our demise and the collapse of everything that we've ever known because we just can't function at those kind of global temperatures at those kind of extremes. I mean, I, I, I know the Union of Concerned Scientists using IPCC data, they concluded by 2100, 2100, my area could have what 140, 60 days of um, heat indices over 100 degrees, whereas we get like a handful of those days, you know, or 110 where we get a handful of those days right now. And it's just like, how am I supposed to function in that environment? Yeah. You know, so I, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you see it coming, you see it coming down the pipe, but it's, it's either denial or just, um, or just uh, assumption that we'll find a way to fix it. We'll, we'll, we'll fix yeah. it, we'll get it solved. We have the Paris Agreement, we have the IPCC, and you know, scientists are working on it. We're gonna just be fine. This sort of distraction and double dealing is another form of denial. And the denial is necessary to keep this knowledge at bay because we really don't want to take it on board because it's way, way too terrifying when we understand the abrupt, in abrupt yeah. climate change. And there are a couple of things that are main drivers in terms of time frame, as far as I see it. One of them is the melting of the Arctic and the so-called blue ocean, Arctic blue ocean event. Um, can you please talk to us based on the summer that we've just had and the outlooks for the future? When do you think the Arctic sea ice will melt entirely and what's the effect on the climate and the consequences for civilization in a general sort of way? The, the actual, you know, blue ocean event as it's defined, which is uh, 1 million square kilometers or less, and it is kind of, it is somewhat arbitrary, but it's basically where the central Arctic basin is, is pretty much empty of ice. Um, 
I, I think for me that that's based on the trends, even like a linear trend, you're, you're talking in the next 10 years that that's going to happen at some point, even for a day in, in the Arctic. And then of course, it, once, you get, once you get to a point where it's getting so low so much, it starts to happen all the time. So you're getting it for a week, you're getting it for a month, you're getting it for several months out of the year. And, it, and that could happen very quickly over a matter of years. Again, an abrupt climate change type of process that accelerates dramatically. And, and that, that process of acceleration that we're already in, we're already in that process of acceleration and it just goes so much faster um, will mean dramatic warming of the land Arctic, so the land masses of the Arctic. And again, you're already beginning to see that. You're seeing temperatures of 80 or 90 degrees in high uh, uh, latitude areas this past couple of summers. And part of the reason I got on, uh, got on some of the attention that I had last summer on the BBC and other issues because uh, I happened to point out that there was forecast for 90 degree temperatures in Northern Siberia along the shore of the Laptev Sea. Um, in the middle of July, <laughs> you know, and now we've seen those temperatures in parts of eastern Siberia and in Alaska, um, a widespread areas, not just an isolated location, but all but in widespread areas, upper 80s and low 90s, uh, where you're just getting dramatic melting of permafrost from these high to extreme temperatures. That would just get so much worse. <clears throat> the melting of the permafrost in the subsea of East Siberia, Eastern Siberian uh, Sea, that would get much worse. So you get much more emissions of methane. Um, how big those would be is anyone's guess, but they would accelerate. Um, you would also get uh, major destabilization of the jet stream. It's, again, it's already slowing down. You're already getting bigger waves that sit in the same place for long periods of time. And then shift when they do shift the weather dramatically swings from one extreme to another so you get extreme heat and to extreme cold you get um go from extreme wetness and floods to drought and i mean we're already seeing that here on the plains we're starting to get drought reappear in texas and oklahoma um areas that were dumped on by rain just a few months ago mm -hmm. um so basically everything that you're already seeing now in terms of extremes, either extreme conditions or swings, they just get so much worse as you approach and cross that threshold of blue ocean in the Arctic. And as that blue ocean grows and the Arctic uh, becomes more of a temperate place, then your air currents slow down. So you start getting stuck weather patterns even more persistently, your hurricanes slow down even more. So you get very, very heavy torrential rainfall events and extreme damage events, wind damage events from hurricanes sitting in the same place. And if it happens to be over a, near a landmass, they get devastated uh, continuously. This is what happened with Harvey, what happened with Florence, this is what happened or is happening with Dorian now. Uh, so everything you know, you see already, just gets dramatically worse and faster. So that's a, a very rapid climatic shift um, as the planet continues to warm. And there are other, obviously, other tipping points too. But that that's obviously a dramatic one. Um, 
one of the most dramatic ones that would have global implications. Southern Hemisphere too, you know, they're losing um, sea ice, F, you know, sea ice extent, sea ice volume. And you're seeing those effects in Australia and in South America with increasing heat, drought, um, or floods. Who inspires you? Like who, who do you read or watch or listen to that nourishes you or that inspires you or that you find supportive? Uh, because there's few people that are aware of the catastrophic changes that are already undergoing, that have been undergoing, and that are coming down the pike than yourself. I'm just curious, who or what inspires you or helps you or supports you? And these people aren't necessarily, some of them are, but they're not necessarily people I talk to about climate change or anything, but I'd say my, my, you know, my fiance and my son, they get me through the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, cause I spend, you know, I literally go, go out and sit down and, and do doom for several hours a day where I'm posting about articles I'm writing, you know, or I'm doing a video. I'm doing all of these things because I don't have a regular uh, job right now. So that's what I do because, you know, people donate to help me out while I do these things, which is great. And, but then I, I got to get away from it <laughs> because it's going to drive me crazy if I don't. And so, um, you know, I, um, my, my, my young son, he's three years old, a couple weeks ago, he uh, goes to, to what we call early head start, which is sort of an early preschool, pre-preschool program. And he gets out of school and hang out with him and, and hang out with my fiance, Cassie. And, and I don't, um, you know, maybe the topic comes up briefly here and there if she reads something that I wrote, but otherwise I don't really talk about this topic very much. And um, that, <laughs> that's, that's insp it's inspirational, but it's also, um, also freeing, you know, yes. that I have the ability while we still have relative normalcy, at least in this part of the world, to be able to, to get away from it. You know, because there may become a point when I can't, you know, like the events in March here in Nebraska, um, where bridges that I used to, highways I used to drive on all the time got destroyed. Um, you know, that was kind of a wake up call that it's knocking on the door here, but, um, you know, I get away, get away from it when I have an opportunity. Um, and as far as uh, science people, I, 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 one of the first people I met, I, um, got into actually was Paul Beckwith. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I, you know, I, I took his cues and how, and communicating with the general public from him, you know, I, uh, got a lot into doing this because of how he does it and how he communicates with people because he is very down to earth with the science and, and side of it and his views on, on how he thinks, which he thinks should be done or something. But, you know, he, he, uh, he sort of inspired me to get more into doing these kind of communications with people. Cause I think it matters a lot to have independent scientists that can go to people and actually actually just talk to the people about what's happening without all the political BS or anything else. I've got to share a fun story. Uh, I'm not even sure I shared this with Jennifer when we talked last. So this may be new to you as well, Jennifer. Um, Connie and I were in Eastern Canada doing a bunch of programs and um, we, uh, we had just completed a clergy retreat uh, on sort of yeah. ecology as the heart of theology. And Connie was writing to an email to Zach St. George, who just completed a book on assisted migration, assisting trees in migrating north. Um, 
uh, because of how rapidly the climate is changing, it turns out hundreds, thousands of species of trees will go extinct unless humans assist them in migrating mm -hmm. poleward faster than other, any other animal can move them. And mm -hmm. so she concluded the email and she said, yeah, we gave these ministers a lot of doom, but you know, there's only so much doom you can give ministers because they got to go into the pulpit and share. So she said, <laughs> so she said, she said, pretty soon we got to a post-doom place. And you know something? Post-doom has a gorgeous sunrise. <laughs> Period. Exactly. That was the yeah. end of the email. And I read this email. I was like, that's great. And then the very, <laughs> and then the very yeah. next day, we were in Ottawa. And we, had, we spent like four or five hours with Paul Beckwith and Paul Chaferka. And the, the, the four of us just you know, spent the better part of the day together. And we, po we, uh, we sort of floated this idea of a post-doom conversation series yeah. with, with the two of them. And they were like, go for it. You know? Yeah, it's kind of funny you're talking about the the uh, the ministers because my my grandfather on my mom's side is actually a retired Lutheran minister, and um, you know he's always he's always a good reminder when I get uh, you know either depressed about something or bogged down about something to remind me about faith and about staying just sort of staying connected and listening to God and and stuff like that. I don't really talk about God very much. I'm not what you could call a a super particularly super religious person um but you know part of my part of my um connection to um what i do in the sciences was to sort of understand sort of god's work and god's um way of um of um, organizing the world and sort of getting a glimpse into it with the human mind <laughs> so it's yeah. yeah and so but you know he you know he um he's helped helped me out over the years with with my with my thinking and helping me sort of understand the the uh the problems in the world either problems with you know the way people deal with each other racism things like that he's got a lot of experience in his life um uh being being sort of a sort of an earlier uh, pioneer pioneer for you know uh, black ministers in the lutheran church so yeah he's he's been he's a good guy and my 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 dad, I think, was an, is another you know inspiration for my family. He died in in uh, 2017 in January, um, and he and he died of cancer. So I I got really got to sort of experience the, both the stages of grief before his death, and also the stages leading up to his death. You know, the stages of death and dying, and that process of seeing you know this former you know U.S. Army buff guy sort of deteriorate, you know, and, 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 and watching him deal with the grief of that, you know, I remember the, the uh, a week before he died, I visited him in Seattle and uh, he told me about, you know, what he thought would happen to him when he passed away and told me about, yeah, you know, um, about his, uh, his beliefs based on his, um, you know, his, his mom and dad, my grandmother, who's a Catholic and my grandfather who was actually Muslim, you know, and, and how they sort of, uh, integrated that into the family and everything else. So, you know, it's, so the spiritual side, I don't really get to talk about very much or have that opportunity. So that's why I, I enjoyed, enjoyed the idea of having a conversation where I go more into my spiritual side, my thoughts and feelings about the actual changes underway and everything else. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all that. I mean, that's part of why I was motivated to do this series in the first place, 
is to invite people who are awesome teachers in their own right to share some of what nourishes them, what inspires them, how they process this emotionally, sort of how they went from sort of believing in perpetual progress as most of us did to yeah. now a very different worldview, much more sobering and uh, challenging worldview. Uh, and, and, you know, there's, we've all read people that, you know, or watched documentaries that, you know, 90% of it is like totally terrifying, like, holy shit. And then, <laughs> yes. and then, and then the last 10, the last 10% or 5% is the happy chapter, you know, yeah. about if we, if we all just do this, we'll, we'll yeah. make it. And, <sighs> yeah. Know, somehow, Nick, I just don't think you're going to offer us a happy chapter there, bud. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a, not a, uh, not a hopes and dreams <laughs> that will have well, flying cars and go to Mars. And I mean, that's what I, that's what, that's the future that I hope for. I always hope to live long enough to see the first man or woman on Mars or whatever, you know, and now I don't think. Say more about that. Say more about like that. That's part of your story that I want you to get into. Oh, yeah. Like, like how did you go from sort of a techno optimist understanding growing up in Seattle? My God, Boeing and, you know, the stars and the spaceships and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And how did that transition happen for you emotionally? I've been trying to think it over and I'm, it's been kind of a weird um, started. Well, it's a weird, uh, like, and in its own right, sort of an abrupt step itself, because, you know, I, you know, I mean, when you're a meteorologist, you're, you're all into technology and scientific progress, no grit, right? We can do all these fancy things with all these toys, you know? And, and, but then I think, um, I think the turning point for me was, um, it was actually, um, well, one of the turning points besides you know, seeing the disasters in my face that no piece of technology can possibly stop was also um, um, Guy McPherson, um, you know, posting about or doing uh, these presentations on abrupt climate change. But he went, he went a little bit beyond uh, just like the science of climate change usually, most of his presentations. One of the things that he discussed was the, was the, um, the assumed superiority of humans and, and he would talk about you know you know because you know we usually as an african-american you know we're i'm uh, i'm always concerned about white supremacy and superior and superiority superiority some people have of their whiteness over my darkness you know things like that the superiority within humans against each other um but this goes beyond that. You see that there's an assumed superiority as a species as well over nature. And, and that we all are growing up into this idea that we are superior to all other forms of creatures. You know, it's not, you know, because I mean, you think about it, the other species, they, <clears throat> that aren't, don't have uh, unlimited energy available to them or, or unlimited, or, haven't evolved certain traits that make them capable of of overpowering all of the predators around them they live in harmony with nature you know they live in a certain stable state and in fact they may not even have a concept of i'm superior to to such and such species you know the lion doesn't think i'm superior to the antelope it just chases it and if it escapes it escapes <laughs> if it doesn't they got food you know but with humans, it's, it, they're, they're now, you know, 
I've kind of thought about this more and I wonder if that's really something that all humans necessarily have because you could find cultures where easily lots of cultures where they don't have this assumed superiority over nature. They try to do everything possible to live with nature. But I think perhaps at some point, either in, in, in certain cultures, when they get maybe big, you get a lot of people, maybe a lot of um, growth, then for whatever reason, this sense of superiority starts to crop up. You know, we're superior to these other people. We're superior to the to the trees, we can make the mountains move out of our way. You know, it gets, mm -hmm. there's a growth mindset that the ego grows even. So I think when you're small, there's more humility, but then when you start getting a little bigger, you think, oh, I can, I can move that mountain. I can build all these roads. I can move the river, you know? You know, I can destroy, I can take down all the forest, build, a, build huge castles and have the people worship me while I, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. you know, so I, I think, I think it's, it's not, um, <clears throat> I don't know if, if McPherson would necessarily agree with that. Maybe he thinks all humans have that trait. I'm not sure, but. All, yeah, all humans is, clearly don't because for 97% yeah. of our history, we lived with a humble relationship to primary reality. Yeah. Uh, the biosphere, the ecosphere, uh, rather than an arrogant hubris relationship. So it, it, I would certainly argue that it's not all humans, but certainly yeah. we are in a culture that has for so long had the sense of human dominance, human superiority, that we are above and beyond other life forms. And it's yeah. actually worth mentioning um, more than that is we're in a corporate feudal system. And I really yeah. don't think that we should just put all of this on human goodness or badness or <clears throat> intent. We have to acknowledge that we are part of a corporate feudal system and we are serfs on the land. And yeah. for the most <laughs> part, the corporations yeah. are dictating you know, our fate, the oil companies and the petroleum companies have been extremely powerful and gotten their way into any number of laws. And that is a lot of, I'm not saying that that's the only thing driving it because the weight of civilization itself is driving this. But the role of corporate um, feudal system <clears throat> cannot be underestimated because it is such a powerful force. And humans, I think, you know, most people want to be good. I really do believe in the innate goodness and yeah. light-filledness of human beings. I, I really do think that underneath that, all of that, we really want to be in light and be in alignment. But things have gotten extremely screwed up. And I really think that corporations are driving the madness and the things driving the corporations are the imbalanced humans with great fear and it's just like this psychological acting out well when it comes to the growth of civilization and in and the coming collapse i i tend to think that civilization perhaps in and of itself is is or has been a destructive force but that destruction was was always relatively small scale when it was smaller so you know 
you could have like the Romans, they would tear down trees, they would do things to build their cities. Well, some habitat had to get destroyed to do that. <laughs> you know, that would be an example of destructive forcing to, to, for humans to have what they think is good um, or, or, you know, well, of the few humans, <laughs> meaning the lords, the feudal people, the people that ran the society. Um, but as it got bigger, it became more efficient at that destruction to the point that it became more of a global destruction. And of course, who does that? You know, obviously nowadays it's, it's the corporations, it's, you know, it's uh, big whatever, big money, big ag, you know, it's all these forces with tons of what they consider to be um, the most important thing on the planet, which is cash <laughs> and, 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 and always being bigger and always growing and using people all over the world, you know, from, you know, relatively affluent Americans to the poorest in other countries, or even the poorest here, uh, to, to fuel this, uh, this illness that seems to afflict people and people have trouble fighting back against it either because they're afraid of being hurt, killed, which is very real in some places, or just not being considered uh, normal in maybe more affluent places, <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I mean, I'm not, like, for example, me, the worst thing I deal with is not being, is not making a lot of money and not being really a part of the meteorology community in any meaningful way. <laughs> so meteorologist, that's the worst I deal with. You know, I, I can't imagine um, being in the diamond mines in Africa or, or in the slums in India, not that those are the only places that have those problems. And certainly there are people in America that are even that are dealing with some really um, terrible things right now, even as we speak. But, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's one of those things where um, we were all caught up in this and we don't know a way out of it in the few, in the fewest among us that that could have done something when it was a chance to do something didn't care because they didn't care about people you know but themselves and those around them that could also make them richer as they see it in order to be in the most powerful positions at this point in history you have to be a sociopath yeah well yeah you have to be ruthless you know you have to be able to cut throats easily it's and uh, that and and those systems are going to self-destruct that's what we are in yeah. the early ages of the uh, early time of the age of consequences yeah. i want to come back to what you shared about your dad is there anything that you learned in the dying process with your father in looking at your own mortality and our species mortality and sort of impermanence <clears throat> and death as just a part of the nature of nature the way things are yeah i mean with my dad there was obviously you know, his desire to want to, to uh, fight the condition that he was in um, and, and try to live a longer life. And I mean, to some degree, he was able to prolong his life that actually had a decent quality of life um, with some of the treatments that he had. <clears throat> Excuse me, but, but once the, it, it was clear that it was getting worse again and he was, um, losing his ability to function in a lot of basic ways. Um, I think he, he moved toward sort of accepting that, that, that process, accepting that he was going to die at some point. And then I think 
near the end of his life in the last weeks of his life, there was sort of what you could call a post doom situation where I don't know if he was necessarily looking forward to it, although he may not wanted to be in pain all the time or deal with all the medications to deal with the pain and all that other stuff. Um, uh, it was, it was about thinking about what what's going on beyond death and what's happening with him and and everything else and 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 so I I, I think that that sort of taught me how to deal with my own you know personal mortality and also the mortality of the species knowing that um, at some point it will not continue it's not endless. And, and, and really, you, you, I think the way you put it, whether it could be 10 years from now or 3 million years from now is, 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 is a good one because there's no way to know when the last person will die or, or evolve out, of, out to, some, to some level that it's not what we would call human anymore. It's, it's, it's gone, you know, and that there is always, everything that begins always has an ending. Mm-hmm. And you just, you don't really think about that and people, particularly in, in perhaps Western culture, don't even think about it with their own individual lives that they're going to end one day. And so we spend so much time trying to, trying to be, you know, be health, not be trying to be healthier, but it's for trying to live forever, right. you know, make things last as long as possible. And, and, the, and there's a difficulty accepting that things end and people end and, and then we have to move forward with that, with that knowledge. And the sooner that we can be at peace with that, the more transformation that peace can bring to the rest of our lives. And that coming to peace, my, that post-doom experience for myself and my own mortality um, was one of the greatest, and to this day is one of the greatest gifts of my life because I no longer fear death. I'm totally at peace with every season. I treat it as if it could be my last. Connie and I literally personify the season and we say at the end of every season, like we just did, you know, thank you, uh, Summer, for being such an incredible blessing. You know, if we never experience you again, we just cherish what a gift you've been. And one of us often comes to tears. In recent, you know, months have really started to, it's been more gradual, but I've really started to feel more of that peace. And I, you know, I remember, I remember two years ago when I really, delved into this uh, uh, being, I remember one day I was like really super depressed, laying in bed, couldn't believe what I, if I figured out. It, it was, uh, you know, but I don't know what it is, but it, it seems like it's just like, why, why should I continue to be depressed about something that I can't change? You know, it, it's, you know, we're going, you know, this is this, this civilization as we know it, that's gonna end. My personal life will end one day. Um, the species will end one day. Everything has an ending. So why, I mean, I should be, you know, grateful for that, for, grateful for what's been good in the world, grateful for my own personal opportunity to live in the world and have the uh, ability to, to do what I do when other, a lot of other people haven't had that opportunity, um, either, you know, on some, some or many people unfairly you know, and I get that opportunity, you know, just sort of let it go, you know, and obviously there are some days that are harder than others, but I'm still overall able to always come back to that. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.